This is the Build Wealth Canada podcast, episode number 33. Welcome to the Build Wealth Canada podcast, where it's all about becoming debt-free, accelerating your wealth, and taking control of your money. Now, here's your host, Cornell Schreiber. Hey, it's Cornell, and welcome to the Build Wealth Canada show. Today, we have Susan Daly on the show, and we're going to talk all about early retirement, such as how to pull it off, what to look out for, and some of the most common mistakes that Canadians make when trying to plan this out. Now, Susan is an associate portfolio manager over at PWL Capital in Waterloo, where she provides financial planning and investment management services to a wide range of clients. She's also an honors BBA graduate from Wilfrid Laurier University, which is actually where I graduated from too. So it's always fun to chat with a fellow grad about kind of best practices when it comes to financial planning and investment. So we have a lot of fun in the interview. Uh, she's also uh, also has her video series called Your Money, Your Choices, which you can find on YouTube and in the show notes as well over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash 33. So just the number 33. And the video series aims to provide Canadians with expert advice to help improve their personal finances. So they cover topics like, well, really everything from savings to spending to financial planning to taxes as well as investing. All right. Now, before we dive into the interview, let's give a quick shout out to the show sponsors. Now, if you are thinking about having enough for retirement, whether it's an early retirement in your 30s, 40s, or 50s, or a more traditional later retirement in your 60s, obviously a big component of being able to pull that off is investing properly. And so what I'd like to do is promote two resources that can help you not only do this properly, but they actually also help support the show and then let it stay on the air. So the first resource that I have that I'd like to endorse is for those Canadians that want to learn how to get started in investing here in Canada, while at the same time paying the lowest fees possible. Possible. So one of the most common questions that I get asked by listeners of the show is how to actually invest properly. So what I've done is basically created an in-depth step-by-step video guide that shows you how to actually do everything from beginning to end. And in it, I also answer all the questions that I get asked by Canadians who are looking to get started in investing. So the video guide is specifically for Canadians where we actually get to look over my shoulder and see exactly how I invest every single month. You'll see exactly where I go, where to click, and really how to avoid some of the most common and critical investing mistakes made by Canadians. On top of all that, you get full access to all the tools and resources that I personally use when I invest every month. So you don't have to go out there and do any complicated math or build your own your fancy spreadsheets as I've basically built and automated all the complicated parts for you. And these are things that I actually use myself. You also get unlimited support directly from me in case you have any questions and you get an entire two months to try out the entire guide risk-free. So you can check out the details and view two full lessons for free over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash invest. That's buildwealthcanada.ca slash invest. And for those Canadians who maybe have already been doing a fair bit of investing themselves, the second resource I recommend is if you want some advice on what investments to actually buy. For example, maybe you want to invest in some stocks that will reliably pay you dividends to fund your lifestyle. Or maybe you want to allocate a portion of your portfolio towards stocks that have a high potential for growth. Or maybe you have some questions about specific ETFs or stocks that you're considering. So that's where 5 Eye Research comes in, where they have already answered over 40,000 investing questions, where you can actually ask your own questions as well. 
They also have different model portfolios for different investment strategies and over 70 research reports of companies that they follow where they tell you the stocks that they recommend, whether you're a dividend investor, a growth investor, or if you're looking for a nice balanced portfolio. And it's worth mentioning too that they're totally conflict free. And that's why really I wanted to partner up with them. They don't actually sell any investments. So basically they're a great non-biased resource to get recommendations on specific stocks and ETFs. So they're not trying to sell you, you know, some stocks or some ETFs or some, you know, extra service on the back end. Now, no Normally, they don't offer free trials, but I've arranged with them that listeners of the Build Wealth Canada show can actually get full access for free for one month. So you basically get full access to all the stock recommendations, all the model portfolios, as well as their database of over 40,000 answered investing questions. So I encourage you to check it out. At the very least, you're going to learn a ton and you can get full access to everything for free for a month by going to buildwealthcanada.ca slash trial. That's buildwealthcanada.ca slash trial. All right, so I hope you check those out, and now let's get into the episode. All right, Susan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Cornell. Thanks for having me out. No problem. So, Susan, before we get into the questions, especially about how to pull off an early retirement, what I wanted to ask you uh, first are really two popular questions that I know a lot of Canadians have, and that is for somebody that's saving money for a large purchase, like a house, a wedding, a car, things like that, where do you suggest they keep their money to basically let it grow safely? Right. So there are two uh, aspects to this question. One is which accounts are you going to use? And then the second is what are you actually going to invest the money in for the growth? Um, so for the latter, for short-term goals like a house, a wedding, or a car, uh, I recommend avoiding investing the money in risky assets like stock. Um, the reason is if it's a short-term goal, uh, you don't want the assets to drop when you want the, to take the money out to buy that car or uh, to pay for your wedding. So this gives people a couple of options. Uh, so GICs are good. Uh, they have a set deadline um, and you don't you can't pull the money out before the GIC matures, um, but it does give you uh, a little bit higher return than a high interest savings account uh, and it is protected through the Canada Deposit Insurance Corporation or CDIC. Um, as I mentioned, uh, high interest savings accounts are also an option. Um, these are really good because they're extremely flexible. So you can pull the cash out at any time. So uh, if you find that perfect house uh, and you need cash set aside for that, then you can pull it out without an with at any time without having to wait for a GIC to mature, for example. Mm -hmm. And then what about something like a, like a bond ETF, for instance? Uh, yeah, so bond ETFs are also an option. Um, the problem with bond ETFs, though, is uh, unlike a GIC or a savings account, there is the possibility that you will lose money on them in the short term. Uh, so bond ETFs are, are dependent on the interest rate. So if the interest rate uh, rises, then the capital value of your ETF is going to fall. Uh, and you wouldn't want that to happen at the point that you're looking to pull the money out. Right. And I'm assuming when it when it drops, is it it's by a significant enough of an amount that it's not worth risking it, putting it there? Uh, it's it it's a it's a personal question really. right right um, so uh, it depends on what risk you're looking to take uh, so some people might say well um, I can get a bit higher return with a bond TF bond ETF mm -hmm. I'm still not taking the risk that I would be if I were to invest in stocks um, but I am willing to accept that I could lose a little bit of money if I did put it into a bond ETF others might say well I just put 
five or ten thousand dollars aside for this and i don't want to lose any of that money so mm -hmm. for those people i would suggest a gic or a uh, high interest savings account even yeah. though it's not very high interest right now right right gotcha and then you said that the second component was what account to keep it in so did, did you want to address that too yeah, exactly. So um, for savings uh, for weddings and cars or other short-term purchases like that, uh, th that should never go into an RRSP or RESP, mainly because there are both withdrawal restrictions uh, associated with those. Um, so for those type of short-term goals, uh, if the investor has available room in their TFSA that they're not using, um, then saving for cars and weddings and other short-term purchases can be placed in the TFSA. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I'd recommend just a regular investment account um, or high interest savings account. Mm -hmm. um, with something like a home purchase, uh, or if you're going back to school, you do have the option to use the RRSP through the Home Buyers Plan or the Lifelong Learning Plan. Um, although I did recently write a blog around this and uh, determined that the TFSA is usually the better way to go if you're saving for a down payment for a house. Okay, interesting. Yeah, and there's a lot less uh, kind of rules and restrictions, right? You just take the money out. You don't have to. You're not forced to you know, pay it back, things of that nature. So I, I, can, exactly. I can see even from a kind of a logistics uh, point alone, it could be pretty advantageous just to use TFSA. For sure. And yeah. even if you are using the RSP and the home buyer's plan, mm -hmm. I'd still recommend having at least some money outside of that so you can use it for um, short-term uh, spending for the home purchase if you need to right away. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. All right. So let, let's uh, shift gears a little bit. And you know, when we're considering deciding between putting our savings in an RRSP versus a TFSA versus an unregistered non-registered account, and in this case, I'm referring to you know for savings basically for retirement. Um, mm -hmm. How do you decide which one to use? What what are kind of the, some of the strategies that you guys use when you're doing financial planning for your clients in terms of deciding which one to do? Right. So if the main purpose of the savings is for retirement, uh, the answer to this really comes down to taxes. Uh, so if you expect to pay higher taxes now than you will in retirement, uh, and this is most often the case, um, people typically earn a higher income while they're working. And then once they retire, it drops off um, the income that's required drops off because um, they don't have to save, they might not have expenses for children. Mm -hmm. um, so that in that case, you should use the RRSP for savings. Um, there is an important caveat with this though. Um, so you need to also save the tax refund if you're saving in the RRSP. Mm -hmm. A lot of people who contribute to the RRSP, come tax time, they say, oh, I just got a three or $4,000 tax refund. Uh, and they'll go on a shopping spree and spend, spend money that they wouldn't normally have spent spent mm -hmm. uh, if they hadn't received that. So if that is the case, then a TFSA is better um, because you're not taxed on that income in retirement. Uh, whereas if you invest in the RSP, you don't invest the tax refund, you're still going to have to pay that tax down the road. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the proper way to think about this is if you have $10,000 in after-tax money to save, uh, you can either put that $10,000 in the TFSA or um, depending on your tax rate, say it's $13,000 pre-tax, that's how much you go into your RRSP. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Okay. Um, oh, sorry, were you going to add something else? Oh, I was just going to say, um, conversely, if you expect your tax rate to be lower now than in retirement, uh, and this is typically the case for people maybe just starting out, um, their income might be low now, but they expect to uh, improve their job prospects and their income down the road, 
or for example, somebody who has a low income year because they're not working that year, um, or spouses who earn little income now, but their tax rate's gonna jump up when they split their income in retirement, mm -hmm. um, then the TFSA and maybe even non-registered account uh, would be more beneficial than investing in the RRSP. Gotcha. Okay, that sounds good. Um, and then now, what if you're planning to retire or let's say semi-retire early? So let's say, you know, instead of waiting until you're in your 60s, let's say you want to retire fully or semi-retire in your 30s or 40s. Um, and so it's basically a really long time before you start getting those government benefits. And so you're basically, you know, you, you require that portfolio that you've been saving a lot more. Does that change anything in terms of what accounts you would put your savings in? Right. So if you are planning on retiring in your 30s or 40s, you're probably going to be maxing out your tax sheltered accounts anyway, right. just in order to save up enough to live on the rest of your life from. Um, so these, in this case, you'll probably have all three types of accounts, RSPs if you've been working, TFSAs and non-registered accounts. Mm -hmm. um, but depending on how much you earn while working, you might have a large RSP. Uh, so say you retire at 45 uh, and you had uh, good income going uh, throughout your career, then your RSP might be large. Um, but if that's the case and you only have an RSP, um, there might be years where you have to take a big withdrawal out to uh, pay for something large, um, say for a furnace or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, that might cause you to be bumped up into a higher tax rate. Um, and if you are pulling from your RSP, you also have to pay a 30% or up to a 30% withholding tax on that. Um, so it's usually a good idea to have some, at least some money outside of an RSP and give you that flexibility to uh, reduce your taxes on an ongoing basis if you do need to pull out extra money from uh, your accounts to pay for items in years where your income is going to be higher. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And, and yeah, like you said, if you're doing that early retirement, then you're obviously your savings rate is pretty much has to be very, very large at that point. So you're maxing out those registered accounts anyway, um, or I guess very close to it. So you're putting some in non-registered and I guess that gives you some good room to play with as well, right? In terms of what to take money out, where to take money out from so that you remain in that lowest bracket. That, that makes sense. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Now, is there any time that you would use a non-registered account before using an RSP and TFSA, especially if you're planning to retire early? Uh, so for the average Canadian, um, there aren't really any good reasons for using a non-registered account before the TFSA. Mm -hmm. uh, the exceptions might be if you own a corporation uh, or if you are a U.S. citizen where the TFSA isn't recognized in the U.S. and mm -hmm. you'll still be taxed on that income. Um, but in general, uh, the TFSA in most cases should be used before the non-registered uh investment account mm -hmm. gotcha and yeah so one of the i know one of the things that kind of we're doing now because we're trying to save for um for we're trying to plan for uh, like an early retirement or at least for my wife uh so she can maybe you know stay home with the kids that kind of thing so mm -hmm. one, of, one of the things kind of we've been doing is basically how you know maxing out the tfsa and then maxing out the rrsp but up to kind of the lowest sort of tax bracket, right? Um, just so that kind of, you know, before we before we jump to the second bracket, just kind of, you know, so that we're getting taxed at that lowest level. Um, and then I'm wondering if, you know, should, because in those cases, right, if you're kind of already, if you've kind of forced yourself into the lowest tax bracket by just massively contributing to your RRSP, once you hit that kind of lowest bracket, would it then make sense to put money in the non-registered account perhaps? 
Uh, yeah, that is uh, a good option. Mm -hmm. um, so for somebody, say you're going to be paying, paying less tax now than in retirement, mm -hmm. um, you don't want to be um, using up all your RSP room right. uh, and then not uh, getting that tax benefit and having to pay a higher tax down the road. Exactly. Um, but the caveat to that is um, depending on what you're investing in, uh, if you contribute to the RSP, you get that tax deferred growth up until your retirement. Right. Um, so it's really difficult to provide a rule of thumb mm -hmm. because it's going to depend on a number of factors, including the time horizon, um, what return the investment earns mm -hmm. and how they're taxed. Uh, so it's, it's typically going to be a quite personal situation. Um, but in the case of um, your putting money in the RSP still, um, you'd have to really look at your situation and see what your tax rate is going to be uh, throughout retirement and kind of manage that. Gotcha. So unfortunately, I guess once you get to that point, you have to really sit down and do some not so enjoyable tax math <laughs> and, exactly. figure, and figure out, okay, what's what's kind of the better play here? Uh, like you said, what's the time horizon, things of that nature. So um, that's, <laughs> that's, that's not the answer I think people want to hear, but I guess, yeah, at that point, it's time to get really specific and then you have to, uh, you, you really start strategizing kind of in detail in terms of how to do it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Awesome. And then in your opinion too, how can you best determine if you've actually saved enough to retire early? Right. So this is probably one of the most important questions. And if you don't determine that properly, making sure your investments are efficient, it's not going to matter one bit because you could be as efficient as possible. But if you wake up and you're 70 and you don't have any money left over, who cares about the efficiency, really? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so intuitively, how much you need to retire is going to depend on how much you want to spend every year in retirement. Uh, the total amount is going to depend on how many years you expect to spend that annual retirement income. So really, when you retire and what your life expectancy is going to be. Uh, so if you retire earlier, you're going to need a lot more income than somebody who retires 10, year la 10 years later because you have two things going against you. One, you have fewer, year, fewer years to save, and two, you're pulling from the portfolio for an extra 10 years. Mm -hmm. uh, so in summary, you can retire when your retirement assets match your retirement liabilities. Mm -hmm. So one rule of thumb that I see a lot is the 4% rule, um, or put another way, essentially multiplying the income that you need in retirement by 25. So this 4% rule was developed by William Bengen, uh, or Benjen, not exactly sure how to pronounce his name. Um, so this rule was developed by William Bengen, who determined that withdrawing 4% of the initial portfolio value indexed to inflation every year would last 30%, or sorry, I'm gonna re-say that. Um, so this rule was developed by William Bengen, who determined that withdrawing 4% of the initial portfolio value indexed to inflation every year would last 30 years with a balanced portfolio of 50% U.S. stocks and 50% fixed income. So, for example, uh, somebody with a million-dollar portfolio would be able to take $40,000 from their portfolio annually, indexed to inflation, and not run out of money based on the historical returns that were used in the study. Um, so from this 4% withdrawal, you'd also have to deduct taxes. So your spending would actually have to be less than that $40,000 right. on a million dollar portfolio. Uh, 
Um, there are a few issues with this 4% rule though. Um, so unfortunately, the 30-year time constraint seems to have been lost along the way for some people. Um, so if you're a male and you're retiring at 35, you have a 50% chance of living past age 80. Um, and this increases to age 85 for females. So that could be a 45 to 50 year time horizon, um, which obviously is much longer than that 30, time, 30 year time horizon used for the 4% rule. Right. And if mortality rates continue to drop as a result of technology and improved healthcare, we could see people living even longer than that. Uh, so I did some analysis on using this 4% rule on a 50% equity, 50% fixed income portfolio um, for both a retiree age 35 and 45 uh, living to age 90 uh, using our expected returns that PWL has developed. And unfortunately, the probability of a portfolio lasting to age 90 is only 24% for a 35-year-old and 40% for a 45-year-old retiree. Um, so that's a pretty low probability uh, banking on that 4% rule if you are retiring early. Mm -hmm. um, another problem with this 4% rule is the last 30 years were fantastic for markets. Um, equities earned a, an annual return of around 8% during that time, and bonds averaged 5% in re real terms annually. Um, portfolios are expected to be lower going forward. So um, a couple companies like Vanguard and McKinsey, they've predicted lower returns for equity markets uh, ranging around the 5% uh, area and real return bonds in the 0 to 1% range. Mm -hmm. um, so with that in mind, some people are even suggesting that the 4% rule is now 3 or 3.5%. Three mm -hmm. um, so that means that people are going to have to save more to retire as comfortably as they could have in the past. Mm -hmm. So another issue with the 4% rule is that in some cases, you'll end up with more money than what you started with. Uh, so I ran a simulation using the typical 30-year time horizon uh, and a 3.5% withdrawal rate, which gets you to a 98% chance of success rate at age 90, which is pretty good. Um, but in 23% of the cases, you'd end up with dying Sorry, in 23% of the cases, you'd end up dying with more than a million dollars in the bank. So while that's not a terrible problem to have, um, and your children might be super pleased with you, uh, it just means that you could have spent more throughout your retirement. Um, so those who, sorry, those in retirement whose portfolio has done really well, they're then challenged with the question of whether or not they can pull money, more money out of the portfolio safely and how much. Uh, so the 4% rule doesn't really get, give you a guideline on how you can up your withdrawals on an ongoing right. basis if markets do well. Gotcha. Yeah, and so is that why, because uh, I mean, when I look at sort of best practices and all, usually what I hear is that you should go, you should basically meet with a financial planner, for example, once a year, and then they reevaluate, they, they recrunch the numbers, you know, based on what's actually happened, let's say in the past year, and then you can they can kind of advise you, okay, you know, this is how much you can take out this year, for example, you know, here's how here's how things are going. Is that kind of your recommendation as well? Yes, for sure. Um, so for all of our clients, we update in retirement. Mm -hmm. um, so for all of our clients in retirement, we update uh, a spending number for them mm -hmm. on an ongoing basis. So um, if markets do really well, then we can recommend that they might be able to spend more from their portfolio. Um, but if markets don't do well, then we'll reevaluate and see if perhaps they may have to with uh, reduce their in income on an ongoing basis through retirement. Right, right. 
So that kind of comes to another um, issue with the 4% rule is that it's an average of just different historical paths. Um, But each retiree, they don't have an average experience. They have their very own experiences. By doing an ongoing uh, analysis of this, then we can see uh, if things are going well or things are going poorly and uh, readjust their income based on that. Gotcha. So, I mean, from a practicality standpoint, do you think that the 4% rule still has some use? So let's say that you're a lot younger. Let's say, you know, you're in your 20s, you know, maybe early 30s. So, you know, you you still have a long way to go in terms of being, let's say, able to retire. Do you think Mm -hmm. the 4% rule is kind of a good, you know, just to have a number sort of to aim for so that, you know, you can kind of maybe motivate you a little bit just so you have something concrete. And then once you start getting actually close to that number, that's when you go and you sit down with a financial planner like you guys, for instance, and we say, okay, here's what we have. Let's actually now go into this in a lot more detail and, and kind of figure this out how much we actually need. Would that be kind of a, a good sort of a step-by-step course of action that you'd recommend or would you recommend something different? Uh, I think in general, it's not a bad option, mm-hmm. uh, especially for t- people who are looking to take the historically typical path. So they'll work um, for several years, then at say age 65, they're looking at retiring uh, and won't be working from age 65 until they pass away. Um, That's when the 4% rule can be used as a good rule of thumb, Mm -hmm. just to get a broad idea of how much you might need uh, in retirement. But if somebody's looking to retire much earlier than that, then I don't think the 4% rule is really uh, a great option to really determine how much they would need to uh, retire off of. Gotcha. So is it at that? So if somebody is looking for an early retirement, let's say, would you recommend then that they meet with a financial planner to actually iron out the details sort of way, way ahead of time, just so that they sort of have a realistic image as to when they would be, you know, based on different factors like their savings rate, their incomes, things like that, so they can better figure out a more kind of exact uh, strategy as to how to pull it off? Yeah. So if somebody's looking to retire a lot earlier than the typical 60 or 65 retirement, um, one, they're not going to have a lot of time to actually save that money mm-hmm. um, because they are working for such a shorter period of time. Right. Uh, so I think they definitely need to uh, get a really good handle on what's required mm-hmm. um, and determine if their savings rate can um, meet that requirement. And if somebody's pretty flexible, so they want to um, say they want to retire at age 40, um and they're saving as much as the possible, but if they can't meet that goal and they're they're okay with working an extra, say, 10 years, then that's fine. But if somebody's pretty adamant about retiring at a set date uh, with a set income, um, then I think they have to start even earlier and make sure that um, what they're saving and investing in is on track to meet that goal. <laughs> gotcha. Okay, that sounds good. And then let's, um, let's kind of fast forward a bit. Let's say, you know, the you know, they met with a planner, they've um, they figured out kind of a strategy of how to pull it off. And then they, you know, they hit that number that they were aiming for, you know, based on the kind of lifestyle that they want in retirement. What what happens then? What kind of changes do you, would you make to their portfolio? Since basically at this point, they're focused on sustainability as opposed to growth, right? So they just want to, you know, they've earned the kind of enough money now. They just, they, they don't want to lose it essentially, right? So that they have to go back to work. So what, what would you recommend that they change in terms of, let's say, their asset allocation or the sort of investment products that they choose? Or would it stay the same? Right. So um, 
one thing that does stay the same is that the total returns perspective doesn't change. Mm -hmm. So just because you're in retirement doesn't mean that you should um, prefer high dividend stocks over low or no dividend stocks, for example. Um, it's really what return can you earn on your investments. Um, so this thinking might confuse yields with income uh, and encourage investors to think high dividend stocks are suitable for low yield bonds. Mm -hmm. um, so there are a few issues with using say dividends to replace fixed income. Um, so one is dividends can be cut and the stock values fall just like any others uh, in economic crises. Uh, so they're not bulletproof investments. Uh, when you're in retirement, you want a portion of your portfolio in very stable investments. Um, our research director at PWL has a good saying. He says that if a portfolio without bonds is like driving a car without brakes. Mm -hmm. um, so there are a few that in, that being said, there are a few significant differences between an accumulation portfolio and a retirement portfolio. Um, the main reason that there is a difference is because there are a couple additional risks that you don't have to deal with in an accumulation portfolio that you do with a retirement portfolio. So the first is longevity risk. So for an accumulation portfolio, you don't need to deal with the risk of living longer than expected. You're really just looking to meet a certain goal at a certain time period. Uh, the second risk is um, that a main concern for a retiree is now looking to receive a steady income from the portfolio. So these two additional risks, that means that the risk-free asset changes. Um, so if you think you're in a so when you're in accumulation phase, um, the risk means that you're going to lose money in the portfolio. Uh, so the risk-free asset is a treasury bill or a short-term GIC. These are very safe investments that earn little return, but they don't fluctuate in value very much. Um, but in retirement, the risk-free asset changes to something called an index-linked annuity. So the index-linked annuity provides a stream of steady payments for as long as the retiree lives. Um, so this deals with both the risk in income stability as well as the longevity risk. Mm -hmm. uh, so the price for index-linked annuities that fluctuates wildly in contrast to GICs, but the real income that you receive on an ongoing basis doesn't. Um, so this is going to affect how you structure the portfolio. Uh, the second risk that comes about in retirement um, is the sequence of returns or in-period risk. Um, so when you're withdrawing money from a portfolio, there's the additional risk that markets are going to turn lower when you are withdrawing from the portfolio. So for example, the average return for a portfolio may have been 5% um, in the past, say, 10 or even 30 years. Um, but some years of the portfolio may have returned 15%, others the portfolio might be down 5%. So for example, say your portfolio of a million dollars falls by 5% the first year of retirement, to give you 950,000. But you're also in retirement now, so you need to withdraw $50,000. So your portfolio is only worth $900,000 now. Um, so to get the portfolio back up to a million, you actually need to earn 11% now, rather than the 5% you needed to earn without the withdrawal. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's something that you have to keep in mind as well. Um, you can't simply just say, well, my portfolio has earned 5% uh, over the last 10 or 20 years, um, and I can withdraw that amount on an ongoing basis. Mm -hmm. 
All right, I just wanted to thank Five Eye Research for being a sponsor of the show. And I wanted to let you know that I've actually arranged for Build Wealth Canada listeners like yourself to get two extra bonuses when you sign up for the free Five Eye trial, which is actually very easy to do and doesn't even require a credit card. So the first bonus you'll get is that when you sign up for the free trial, you'll receive a one year paid subscription to the Canadian Money Saver magazine absolutely free. So this is the exact same magazine that you see at Chapters and other stores all over Canada, and you get the entire subscription for free for an entire year, no strings attached, just for signing up for the free 5i trial. Now, the second bonus is that you'll also get one question credit for free on the 5i Research site. So you can actually ask 5i's team of analysts your most pressing investment question, and they'll answer it for you using the knowledge and investment tools that you and I simply don't have access to. Now, normally only paying 5i members receive question credits like this, where you can ask the 5i research and analysis team your investment questions. But as a Build Wealth Canada listener, you get one credit for free so that even if you don't decide to be a paying member and receive more question credits, you've at least had your most pressing investment question answered by the professionals over at 5i. All right, so enjoy. It's all free. You'll learn an absolute ton and you can get it all by going to buildwealthcanada.com dot ca slash trial that's buildwealthcanada.ca slash trial all right now back to the show for the bond portion of the portfolio or i guess for the for the safe sort of stable component of mm-hmm. the portfolio in retirement are you basically saying that what, what, what you guys do is you put a portion of it uh, towards an annuity just to kind of have that sort of sustainable uh, kind of ongoing income stream to basically satisfy sort of the uh, you know some other spending the minimum spending needs uh, and then you put uh, the other pieces in basically a bond ETF is that kind of the 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 summary there? Uh, so si- similarly, so uh-huh. um, an annuity is um, pretty well the gold standard in um, a retirement portfolio. So you can kind of think of an annuity very similar to a defined benefit pension um, that's providing a steady and potentially inflation index stream of income for the rest of the pensioner's life. Right. Um, so that uh, helps deal with the market risk and the longevity risk. Um, and annuities are really the private version of that uh, offered by insurance companies. Um, but annuities aren't very popular in Canada for a couple of reasons. Um, so one, the market isn't very large, um, which is potentially a chicken and egg situation. Uh, so if many people aren't buying annuities, the market might not be very large and vice versa. Um, so there's not a lot of price competition in annuities. Um, secondly, there's a big behavioral issue with annuities. Uh, so people have a really hard time writing a check for, say, a big portion of their net worth, because mm-hmm. if they die the next day, in many cases, that money's gone and unavailable to their heirs. Right. Um, and another issue um, is that annuities are quite expensive now since uh, current yields that are used to price the annuity are at historical lows, uh, meaning that annuities cost much more than they did in the past. Um, so annuities are still uh, a good option for retirees, but in practicality, we don't see many people actually buying annuities or wanting to buy annuities. Mm-hmm. So what we do is we essentially try and create an annuity through the bond portion of our portfolios um, that are still very liquid. Um, if the client passes away, mm-hmm. then um, that those assets are going to go to their children or their heirs, um, whoever's in their will. Um, so we try and uh, kind of meet 
halfway and build out our own type of annuity. Um, but unfortunately, that still can't mitigate uh, some of the risks like longevity risk gotcha. um, inherent with retirement portfolios. Okay, so so you're, you're basically, uh, if I understand correctly, you're basically buying or you're, you're purchasing, let's say, bond ETFs for the client, and then you kind of model that, what, what, what you're going to expect to kind of act sort of like an annuity, and that's sort of that safe portion of their of their portfolio. Is that, would that be a f- correct way of understanding it? Or am I missing a piece? Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's a good way to think of it. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that we incorporate annuities within our thinking, though, mm-hmm. um, is that when we determine how much uh, a pensioner can spend on an ongoing basis, we'll essentially calculate the annuity um, that they could purchase with their entire portfolio. Mm-hmm. Um, but for a client, uh, that's going to fluctuate as markets fluctuate. Um, so that's fine for the bond portion. It should stay relatively set- stable. Um, and yes, you can think of it similar to um, an annuity, the bond portion, uh, mm-hmm. aside from that um, longevity risk that's still uh, inherent with uh just typical bond portfolios. Um, But the fluctuating aspect of our spending rule is going to come about because included with that security portion of the portfolio, Mm -hmm. we also include a growth portion that helps reduce uh, inflation risk and provides some growth that can help combat that longevity risk as well. Gotcha. Yeah, because I guess the the thing that I was always, um, you know, that I think a lot of people are curious about is, you know, when we're in the accumulation phase, it's very much, you know, stock, you have a portion of it in stocks, you have a portion of it in, let's say, you know, some uh, like equity ETFs, you have a portion of it in bond ETFs, you know, mm-hmm. and then there's different ways of obviously determining that, that percentage, right, depending on kind of which school of thought you follow. Uh, but then, you know, once you hit that number, once you hit your set, okay, now I'm actually retired, you know, I, you do you kind of, does it, is there all of a sudden this radical change in what investment products you have, or is it, no, you still hold on to that, you still hold on to the, um, you know, the equity ETFs you have, for example, uh, you know, assuming you're, you're kind of an ETF investor, do you still hold on to those bond ETFs? You just may tweak the allocation a bit to make sure that it, you know, that everything is kind of modeled nicely based on what spending you want. Yes, exactly. So the structure of the portfolio will change um, in order to meet those ongoing retirement liabilities. Um, But the actual investments, so the equity ETFs and the bond ETFs um, will stay the same. Um, Within the fixed income portion, um, when we do build out that security portfolio, Mm -hmm. we might use different types of bond ETFs um, with in that portfolio, mm-hmm. um, but there's still uh, very liquid, very um, diversified ETFs that we still hold in our retirement portfolios. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, because I know there's some listeners of the show, you know, where they're like, like even myself, right? What we're doing, okay, large portion into equities right now, maybe a little bit into bond ETFs, and then we're wondering, okay, well, once we hit that, is there some sort of this massive selling that all this has to go on for us to completely change our strategy because now we're in the decumulation phase? Or is it, no, you're still holding on to the same kind of investments. You might just be doing some some minor tweaks here and there uh, because now you're in that different life phase. 
Right. Yeah. yeah. So that's more yeah. like it. Okay, sounds good. Just want to make sure I understand that because we, we talked about kind of annuities, and I know that's kind of like a whole. <laughs> that's like a whole can of worms, right? So right. Uh, yeah, yeah, gotcha. So okay, that, that that's good to know. Um, so yeah, one of the other things I want to ask is when uh, when you talk to a lot of planners, and especially if you kind of go out there and you read some of these you know early retirement blogs and, and talk to people who are kind of you know trying to do it, um, they talk about a cash cushion uh, that you should have uh, because let's say you have a fair bit of. Uh, a fair bit of money in an equity portfolio. Let's say the markets are in a slump for, let's say, a few years. Uh, you know, it's good to obviously kind of have that cash cushion so you're not selling when, when the markets are low. Uh, is that something you'd recommend? And if so, you know, what's, what do you think is kind of a reasonable cash cushion for somebody that is in retirement so that you're not right. forced to draw down on assets you may not want to sell yet? Right. So um, there's two aspects of that. So one, um, for most clients or every client, really, we suggest that they have some sort of emergency fund available. Um, but in terms of um, holding a certain amount of cash in the portfolio uh, in order to avoid pulling the money out when the markets are down, um, that's really a whole purpose of the security portfolio. Um, so if we're paving out uh, a portion of the um, client's investments into safe and liquid bonds, um, then they're able to pull from that uh, portion of the portfolio as they need it on an ongoing basis without having to be concerned about um, the equity portion of their portfolio uh, fluctuating. Gotcha. Um, so for example, a security portfolio, uh, say you wanted to pave out 10 years of uh, income, then you might have um, one to five year GICs held in the portfolio and then longer term uh, fixed income for the remaining five years. So you know where your money is coming from throughout retirement for those 10 years and you don't have to worry about the fluctuations um, in the growth side of the portfolio uh, because you're not needing to pull from that aspect of it. You're, you already have your income paved out on an ongoing basis. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, because when I, when I talk to people, like I, I had one guest on the show who retired pretty early, kind of in his 30s, and I remember he, he said, you know, he had a really high portion in equities, uh, you know, and but then, you know, because of that, he I guess that would be why he kept such a large cash cushion. I think he, he said there was like a two, two or three years worth of cash, uh, you know, of expenses and kind of ask cash just in case so he doesn't have to sell uh, when the market is at a low. But yeah, so what you're saying is if you actually structure your portfolio uh, in a kind of a different way, then you don't need to keep that big of a cushion because you've got kind of that safer portion of your portfolio that can basically provide you kind of with that, you know, income you need. So you're not forced to start selling all these equities at a, at a much reduced price. Exactly. Gotcha. Okay. Interesting. That's very neat. Um, and so one of the other questions I had for you is uh, asking about real return bonds. Can you talk about w what a real return bond actually is? Uh, Cause I, I noticed, uh, you know, there are advisors that recommend these for people in retirement. So, you know, what's the difference between something like a real return bond? What are your thoughts on it? You know, and how does it compare to something just like a regular, you know, bond ETF or or, um, or just kind of a more traditional bond? Right. Uh, so real return bonds are um, bonds that are indexed to inflation. So if you have a bond that's worth, say, $100 um, and you have a 5% coupon, uh, you're going to get a 5% uh, income on an ongoing basis from that $100. Um, with regular bonds, um, they're typically called nominal bonds, you're only going to get that 5% every year, even if inflation is increasing. So 10 years down the road, you, you're still only going to get that 5 
yeah, the $5 every year, um, but it might not be worth $5 in 10 years. You might only be able to purchase $3 worth of goods with that. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas real return bond, that in, increases with inflation on an ongoing basis. So if inflation is 2%, that $5 um, that you earn every year is going to be increasing by 2% so that you can maintain your purchasing power. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that also uh, is incorporated with the principal amount too. So rather than getting $100, say, 10 years down the road, you might get uh, 110 or whatever its equivalent is in re- real dollars. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So, so, so is that the tool that you basically go to when you're in retirement because you don't want to have that inflationary risk? Yeah, so as I mentioned um earlier portfolios that switch from being accumulation portfolios to depletion portfolios those risk changes um, mainly that inflation risk mm-hmm. um, so where previously the investor was worried about losing absolute dollars and having their net worth decline now the retirees worried about having their future income reduced uh, so a real return re- real return bond would um, eliminate that that risk mm-hmm. uh, associated with inflation um, in theory, these bonds could be laddered so that your real income is paved out for duration of your retirement, um, ignoring any longevity risk, mm-hmm. longevity risks. Um, but practically, there are a couple issues with real return bonds. Um, so one, they're currently very expensive, so you would need quite a bit of money in these bonds to actually pave out your income simply with real return bonds. Um, right now, there's a lot of demand for this asset, especially from the institutional world who are building their portfolios to create pensions for the baby boomers. Mm-hmm. Uh, another issue is the behavioral issue. Uh, so real return bonds are long-term bonds. Uh, so one of the ETFs, the iShares Real Return Bond ETF, uh, it has an average maturity of almost 19 years. Um, so that's very long compared to uh most other bonds in Canada. So when the interest rate rises, the capital value of these bonds falls dramatically compared to shorter term bonds. Mm. Um, So if the portfolio is structured properly, um, this isn't necessarily a bad thing because the future income will still be the same regardless of the present capital value. Um, It's just that investors really need to understand this at the outset um, and be able to accept this capital volatility as it incurs in order to reap those benefits. Mm -hmm. So real return bonds, they do have a place in portfolios, um, but I wouldn't suggest paving out or using all real return bonds as the fixed income portion um, because of some of these risks, as well as the fact that um, over the long term, equities uh, can help combat inflation as well. Um, So I think they're a good piece of the puzzle, um, but not necessarily totally relied upon. Gotcha. No, thanks. That's a great answer. Because, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, when someone hears real return bonds, it's kind of the natural the natural thought is, oh, well, that sounds amazing. We get, uh, you know, I get to have bonds. I don't have to worry about inflation. It sounds 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 like the, you know, ideal kind of safe investment, right? So I'm glad you kind of brought on these, you, you mentioned sort of these extra risks that, uh, yeah, you know, you, you don't have to worry about that inflation per se. Uh, but there is a price to pay, like you mentioned, you know, the long maturity and then the um, uh, 
um, what was it? Yeah, uh, and in the price, of course, of them as well. Like you said, they're they're a lot more expensive. So uh, no, right. so, so that's great. So I'm glad I'm glad you kind of sh- uh, shine some light on that because I think it's mm-hmm. it, it's an easy thing for someone to see and just say clearly this must be what I need to buy. You know, for the income portion of my portfolio. But you said there's actually a lot more more to it than that. So uh, right, exactly. no, awesome. I'm not- Another thing too is um, real return bonds are indexed to um, a specific number for inflation, um, whereas retirees, their inflation um, experience might be different from that. So healthcare mm-hmm. might actually increase at a higher rate than the uh, overall inflation rate. Mm-hmm. Um, so retirees can't necessarily rely simply on real return bonds, assuming that it will be indexed to inflation because their spending might um, increase higher than inflation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's a great point. Yeah, we kind of, you, you can't just assume kind of a one number for inflation when really the services and, and products you use might be inflating at a much, much higher rate, uh, for example, because of increased demand, things like that. So yeah, no, that makes total sense. Awesome. And then how, uh, kind of for my second last question, how do you decide what accounts to take money from in retirement? So, you know, let's say you are retired, you know, you've got someone in RSP, you've got some in TFSA, you've got some in non-registered, you know, how do you decide which one to do? Or are there certain strategies that you guys like to do with your clients, uh, basically to, you know, save some money on taxes, for example? Right. So, um, as I was going to say, um, this is really a question about taxes right. um, for the most part. So um, in general, it's typically better to take money from the RSP last um, to de- delay those taxes. Um, however, with forced RIF minimum starting at age 71 for retirees, um, it's based on a schedule set out by the government. Uh, it can make sense to pull from the RSP sooner uh, to even out taxes in low years. Uh, It also can be a good idea to reduce your total assets within the RSP so that your required RIF uh, payments don't push your income so high that things like OAS is clawed back. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Uh, So for those who have lots of money in their RSP, um, a large tax bill at death could also come about um, since the whole RSP is taxed as income in most cases if there's no spouse to roll it over to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it can make sense to pro- proactively pull from the RSP uh, or RIF up until the next tax bracket uh, and transfer money into the TFSA, which can be passed on to heirs tax-free. Right. Um, and I see the TFSA be- becoming an increasingly important tool um, as the available total contributions increase over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, income earned in non-registered accounts um, are taxed as it's earned. Uh, so it makes sense to use that income um, as it's earned because it's already going to be taxed regardless of whether or not you use it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, So since depending which account to pull money from is mainly a question about taxes, it's really going to depend on the individual situation uh, and their incomes and tax situations to determine um, how much you should be pulling from these various accounts. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. And then, yeah, I want to kind of side question is with, so, I mean, like you guys are, you know, you do financial planning for clients and then there's also sort of tax accountants as well, right? Mm -hmm. So how... You know, if somebody says, okay, I need help with this, I need that, I, I want to optimize uh, kind of so that I don't pay more tax than I necessarily need to, you know, how does someone decide, okay, do I go, you know, with Susan and her team at PWL Capital to kind of, you know, do this financial planning, but also tax optimization, or do I go, you know, with an accountant that's been doing my taxes for X number of years? How, how do you, uh, how, how does that work kind of that relationship between, let's say, your, you know, your tax accountant and a financial planner? 
Right. So we see tax accountants um, and other professionals like lawyers as well um, as a great tool that we can use. So we work with individual client um, accountants and lawyers um, on their specific situation. Um, if you are thinking of using just your accountant to do these sort of um, analysis, you have to make sure that they have um, all of the pieces of the puzzle uh, and they're not just working with a sp select um piece of, say, your income or your RSP withdrawals, um, whereas a financial planner, um, they should be incorporating everything within your life, uh, including your spouse's um, situation and maybe other family members. Um, so as long as a tax accountant is uh, doing that for the tax efficiency, that's okay. Um, but I think uh, a financial planner um, or a combination of the two is a good idea. Gotcha. Yeah, so I could see, for example, using a financial planner, they do the tax piece, but they, they also actually, you know, they, they run some scenarios to make sure you actually have enough to retire and, and that you can sustain it. And then maybe once you kind of have that plan in place, I guess I could see if you want a second set of eyes, you could then get your tax account to see, okay, are there any ways to optimize what my financial planner, you know, recommended from a tax perspective? And then that way you kind of have both parties sort of looking at the numbers because I'm because I, I would assume that most tax accounts they're not going to run you know retirement projections for you right because that's more of a financial planner's job right exactly so um, if you do want to go to the tax accountant then it's uh, a great tool to have as the financial plan um, where your future situation is projected and the tax accountant can use that to um, base their decisions off of uh, if the financial planner either uh, doesn't provide that tax uh, optimization or um, the client wants, as you say, a second opinion. Gotcha. But so, but in a lot of cases, like when you work with your clients now, do you, do you recommend that they also have everything reviewed by a tax accountant or do you guys pretty much provide kind of that, that component as well as part of your service? So they actually don't need to go see a tax accountant per se. Yeah, so we do provide that as part of our service. Right. Um, some people already have relation, close relationships with their uh, tax accountants, especially if they have corporations or things like that. Right. Um, and that's typically the case when we work directly with the tax accountant. But otherwise, we do provide that service to our clients. Okay, perfect. Perfect. Yeah, I can see that being a common question, right? Where someone says, well, there's a financial planner, there's a tax accountant. Who do I choose? <laughs> you know, right. each one has their specialty, but that, that makes uh, that makes total sense. So thanks for, thanks for answering that. Um, so yeah, so speaking about, you know, you guys and the, the services you offer as well, uh, can you tell the listeners a little bit more about kind of where we, they can learn more about you, where they can learn more about PWL Capital and what's the best way to get in touch with you guys for anybody that is considering getting some financial planning help? Sure. So um, the best place to find us is our website. So that's www.pwlcapital.com uh, slash Waterloo. Uh, and uh, there are offices uh, elsewhere as well. Um, but I work in the Waterloo office uh, and uh, provide these financial planning and tax uh, optimization services to our clients, uh, as well as the uh, security and growth portfolio uh, aspect of the asset liability ma management um, in terms of their portfolio. Um, you can, uh, at our website, uh, you can find our emails and our phone numbers. Um, mine's sdaly, D-A-L-E-Y, at pwcapital.com. Uh, our phone number is 519-880-0888. Um, and we are both on LinkedIn and uh, I'm on Twitter at underscore Susan Daly. 
So I also have a YouTube channel called Your Money, Your Choices, which is mainly focused on uh, young professionals and millennials uh, getting started off on the right foot. Awesome. All right, that sounds good, Susan. So if, um, if anybody kind of wants some financial planning help, they can, um, they can reach out to you uh, and the team, or I guess check out some, if they're in another area, should they check out one of the other offices, the PWL offices, and get in touch with those people, or should they just go yeah. to you directly? Okay. Uh, they can. Um, we also work um, online with individuals as well. So oh, gotcha. um, okay. even if you're not in the area, we can still we can still chat. Okay, that's awesome. All right. Well, thanks for thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for answering the questions. And uh, yeah, I look forward to uh, seeing you at the conference next week. Yes. Thank you very much for having me. Okay. No problem, Susan. Bye. Bye. All right. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please leave a review on iTunes if you haven't already, as it really helps other Canadians discover the podcast and in turn helps improve financial literacy in Canada, which is my goal with this podcast as well. Now, last but not least, if you're looking to have an investment question answered or just want to learn a ton for free directly from the pros, then be sure to sign up for the free trial to 5 I Research at buildwealthcanada.ca slash trial. So like I mentioned in the beginning, we've actually arranged a special bonus for Build Wealth Canada listeners where you can actually ask their analysts an investment question and they'll answer it based on all the research, analysis, and tools that they have at their disposal. Basically things that you and I simply don't have access to. Now, normally this Q&A is reserved only for paying 5i members, but as a Build With Canada listener, you can ask them your most pressing question for free. And if you want to ask them more, you can always sign up to be a paying 5i member, but there's no pressure. And at the very least, you'll get that big investment question that's been on your mind answered. And as I mentioned before, as part of the free trial, you'll also be able to view the answers to over 54,000 investing questions, as well as see their top recommended dividend and growth stocks in Canada, their top ETFs, along with different model portfolios, depending on your investment strategy and risk tolerance. And to make this even more over the top, when you do the free trial, you'll also get an entire year of Canadian Money Saver for free and have access to their entire back catalog of all their past issues too. And this is really the exact same magazine and subscription that you see being sold in chapters and other stores all across Canada. So once again, you can get all of that right now for free by signing up for the 5i free trial at buildwealthcanada.ca slash trial. That's buildwealthcanada.ca slash trial. The sign up will only take you about 30 seconds. So do it now if you can, and I look forward to seeing you in there. All right, that's it. Have a wonderful week and talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Build Wealth Canada podcast at www.buildwealthcanada.ca.